Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. My name is Raphael Rowe and my guest today is David, a privately educated financial broker whose life spiralled out of control after he lost his job. His addiction to cocaine and gambling led to crime and eventually attempts to commit suicide. Prison, he says, changed his outlook on life. As he prepares for an adventure no one has ever attempted before, he tells me why he has not allowed his mistakes to define him. Welcome to my podcast, David, Second Chance. Let, let me start by just asking you how you would describe yourself today. You know, who is David today as opposed to who David was before? So who is David today? David today, I am now a prison reformer, reformed prisoner, should I say. Um, started a new life now. I'm trying to do a lot to fight around prison reform and rehabilitation. It's something I'm quite passionate about after spending two sentences in prison. And what does prison reform mean to you? Prison reform, it's all about change. It's trying to change from your old ways and develop that sort of growth mindset and become a better person for yourself, for your family, your society and the community as a whole. Let's start with, with who David was as a, as a young man. Where'd you come from, David? You know, where'd you grow up? What was your you know, upbringing like? Yeah, I mean, if you, on paper, my upbringing was pretty good. Uh, I was born in Bournemouth. My father's in the military, but he died before I was born uh, out, out in the Falklands. Um, and I went to boarding school since I was six to 18 years old. So my education wise, you know, it was really good. Um, went to university, graduated there doing a music degree. And then I worked in the city as a Forex broker where things started going wrong for me, really. Um, once I sort of really had to live on my own two feet. What, what do you mean things started to go wrong for you? Yeah, I mean, I think where I was in boarding school, I was so wrapped up, everything was sort of provided for me, you know. So that time, I never really had to deal with failure. And the first time I really dealt with failure was when I was working in the city. I lost my job and I didn't really know how to handle it too well. Too proud to go and ask for help and support and things just spiraled out of control for me. 
what, what, why did you lose your job and what, what, what was the job that you were actually doing at the time? Yeah, so I was a forex broker uh, up in London. So I was sort of moving the money around for foreign, um, for, Eng- or for English companies for foreign payments and things like that. And I got a big, bit too big for my boots um, and my manager fired me from the company. You know, I, I was doing well, but I wasn't doing it their way. And so I suppose I got a bit too cocky, lost my job. And I tried to hide it from everybody that I lost my job, which then turned to gambling, which then turned to drug use, alcohol, and eventually it led to my crime I committed. So what was it that you did in in, in the trade, the money trade business that, that upset your bosses? If you were doing well, why did they decide that they didn't want you at the firm anymore? It was just it was just not, I was, wasn't it doing by their rules. I wasn't sticking to their rules, what they wanted me to do. They're quite strict. <clears throat> I was bringing in money. I wasn't just doing what they were doing. And it's sort of leading by a bad example, I suppose I was. Um, you've told me many times to sort of change my ways, change my attitude. But I thought, you know, I'm doing all right here. Why do I need to change? Did you make a lot of money for yourself or just for the company? Yeah, I, you know, I was doing all right for myself um, and for the company as well. But again, it's just making that money. has sort of got a bit of an attitude about me to, you know, think, oh, look at me. I've got a bit of money now. Boy about town and all that. And was that what led to your, you mentioned gambling and drugs. Where did you first start gambling and what kind of gambling was you involved in? Yeah, so <clears throat> lost the job. So I still pretended I was going to work, just trying to figure out what's going on in my life. What do I do next? Still applying for jobs. And because I had a bit of money in my bank account, I tried, I went to the casinos and to the bookies, playing the roulette machines and the bookies and playing the roulette machines or even roulettes at the casinos, sort of trying to win my money back. A couple of times, you know, I want my money back. So, oh, great, you know, I can do this for a while. Sort of not desperation. I was just, I was taking the drugs as a coping mechanism to try and forget what I was actually doing and facing up to reality, really. What sort of drugs were you dabbling in? And are drugs something you'd always dabbled in or was this something you turned to when you lost your job? Um, it was cocaine was what I was using. But I was in the city when I was working. I was sort of social using on the weekends or, you know, on an evening. But when I was having the trouble after I lost my job, it became a lot more frequent just because uh, it was sort of numbing the pain I had and trying to forget what I'd been doing. And and the drugs was taking cocaine affecting your ability to do the job. Was that maybe one of the reasons that your bosses decided that you weren't living up to expectations? If I'm sort of honest to myself and I look back at it now, then I probably agree. Yeah, it's sort of gave me fake confidence. I think that's what it was. You know, thinking I was, you know, really good and best. And I think that was the cocaine just giving me that, that fakeness. You mentioned that when you lost your job, you tried to hide that from, from people around you. Who were you trying to hide it from and why was you trying to hide it? People lose their jobs all the time. Yeah, and I understand. It's, well, I, tried, I lived with my girlfriend at the time. I've been with her for uh, about six years. Um, and I tried to hide it from her. I hid it from my parents as well. And I think... In my mind, there's always a lot of pressure just to sort of step up to the plate. And, you know, I was doing really well to get this job and they're really proud of me. And when I suddenly lost it, I thought I don't want to disappoint them. But really what I did probably brought more disappointment than just being honest. I mean, when I speak to them now and sort of talk to them about it, they're like, oh, you should just come and told us, you know, it's not your job and what you do. It's not what we're proud about. It's just you as a kind person. And that's what makes us proud. How did you hide it? How were you able to hide the fact that you weren't getting up and going to work every day? What was you doing to supplement or to hide the fact? 
I mean, I did for, I mean, it happened for about a year. I did just get up and sort of go out, disappear, you know, for the day. I might go work out at the gym or something, and then I'd go and gambling, come back. And But my girlfriend at the time, she also worked shift patterns. So, I mean, sometimes she'd be up before I was. She wouldn't, so she wouldn't know I'd gone. And so you turned to drugs, and how bad did your habit and gambling habit become? The well, the cocaine use came pretty bad. I was using it nearly every day. I mean, the only time I didn't really use it was the weekends when I was with the girlfriend at the time. Um, and then the gambling again, yeah, it's pretty much every day, just trying to win back the money that I was losing, just lying to myself, really. How did they not pick up on your girlfriend in particular or anybody around you? How did they not pick up on the fact that you were excessively using cocaine? Because surely that alters your your personality. And was it just um, snorting cocaine or was you freebasing cocaine? Just snorting cocaine. But I think I think my girlfriend at the time, she was sort of being I think she knew that something wasn't right. But I kept telling her, I mean, she kept asking, but I kept saying, everything's fine, everything's fine. But I think sort of deep down she knew it wasn't right. And, yeah, I think she was sort of just lying to herself as well. Didn't want to admit that you'd spiralled out of control. And and the use of drugs and the gambling, how bad did that get? And, and to what point where you started to commit crime? Basically, so I was I was going to court for a, another crime um, for handling stolen goods. I, some money was transferred into my bank account, which was stolen. And then I was going to go to a court date, I think it was in March. And for this whole year that I've been lying, that I've been working, I've been taking these drugs. When I was meant to go to court, which I didn't tell anybody, I sort of had this, I suppose it was a mental breakdown. And I just disappeared for five weeks, just vanished, just trying to sort my life out and figure out what was going on. How did you get caught up in having illegal money put into your bank account? And where did that illegal money come from? Who was involved? Yeah, so one of the guys I used to buy drugs off, he just did a lot of crime as well. And he asked me if he could put some money in my bank account, not really thinking. He said he'd give me 50% of it and not really thinking about you know how it's going to be checked, uh, traced and everything. It was traced, came back to me. Again, the police are like, oh, you're going to go to jail, you're going to go to jail. So when the time came that I was meant to go to court, I just vanished. I sort of cracked, didn't know what to do and just disappeared. How much money was it? £5,000. Once I was found, I had to go to court for it. And, you know, I didn't go to jail for that crime. Um, I went to jail for the burglaries I did when I disappeared. I mean, even if I faced up like a man, went to court, I, I wouldn't have gone to jail for it. Even though and I was, was that the first time that you'd been in trouble with the law? Like the properly, the proper crime. I mean, there's a few misdemeanors when I was sort of younger and drinking or being silly, but that was the first proper, you know, crime that I committed. So you went on the run or you went hiding from the reality of your life for five weeks. And you mentioned that you started to commit burglaries, but you, you were a man, you know, well educated, good job, lost your job, had money in your bank account, started to gamble, started to do more drugs, started to spend your money. So were you, you know, skint at the time that you decided that the only way to supplement your income was to commit crime? Yeah, it was, I mean, when I disappeared, I did try to end my life. It was just the shame and the embarrassment and everything. So sort of, you know, I left all my bank accounts, left everything, just disappeared with nothing. I did try twice, failed, and then it was just, I mean, my mental health had been suffering massively, just going down to this deep, dark hole. And then, you know, when I was on my own for these five weeks, that's when I sort of just start breaking into houses, trying to get some money just to live to the next day sort of thing. And were you working sort of alone? Were you sort of out there on your own, 
going through this very dark period where you started to commit crime? Yeah, all on my own. How does somebody find themselves in, in that situation? Someone as, as well-educated as you, who probably had lots of opportunities, even though you'd lost your job, given the education that you were afforded. I say, you know, going to boarding school, the impression is that, you know, you get a very good education, you had a good job, things went wrong for you, and you started to commit crime. And then you were arrested, were you, for these burglaries? Yeah, so what happens, I was eventually found in the five weeks I was disappeared. Uh, when they found me, I did have some stolen goods on me, which they then linked back to the burglaries. So then when the time came to be interviewed, we sort of just, you know, held my hands up and told them everything about, you know, what I've been doing, houses that I burgled. You mentioned that you tried to take your life twice. How did you try to do that? Um, the first time I took, tried to take a lot of paracetamol, I think it was about 40 odd, which I drank about a litre of whiskey. Um, all it did was make me very ill for a few days. I didn't go to hospital, but it still had quite a lot of pains in me. I mean, and I tried to hang myself again when I got really drunk. But fortunately, it's like someone was looking over me. I went out to the new forest, the branch broke, and then that sort of just laying there for about a day, just thinking, what the hell am I doing? Like, what do I do next? As I said, my, my mental health is terrible. I just assumed my family had forgotten about me, my friends, everybody just sort of wrote me off. Did you have a, a history of mental health issues or was this all sort of brought on by you losing your job and spiralling out of control? Is I mean, I think I never really wanted to move to London originally. I moved there for an ex-girlfriend. I'm, I'm a, a beach bum through and through. I'm back in Bournemouth now. I absolutely love Bournemouth. And I moved there and I think it was just moving to London where things started just going a little bit wrong for me. When I started getting into this job, you know, I never really touched cocaine before. And it's just that's when just little, it sort of snowballed from where there really going to London. I don't blame my ex-partner in the slightest, you know, but I think for me personally, that's where it was. City life was too much for you. So when you were arrested for the burglaries and found with property and started to confess to the crimes, what happened to you? Um, so then I was remanded. From there, so because obviously they do want to put you back on the streets, thinking that I might disappear again or you know break into more houses. So I was remanded into HMP Highdown. What did you do in there? This was where you were waiting to now face a trial. Yeah. Um, so what, like work-wise or what uh, sort of? Well, I'm just trying to ascertain what life was like. You'd obviously hit rock bottom. You'd attempted to to, to commit suicide, um, mm. whether that was a cry for help or you were genuinely trying to end your life because you'd had enough of life. But it, it sounds like you were then apprehended by the police and locked up in remand. That must have been rock bottom. I mean, how was you feeling when you were in high down waiting for trial? It's a weird one. Like, I mean, luckily I had a guy inside who took me under his wing. He was one of the, um, what do you call him? The peer, he was the induction peer. So I, I, he took me under his wing. I shared a cell with him. I then seeked help for my mental health. So I started taking antidepressants. But I mean, I'm sure as you're aware, trying to get help in prison for mental health is quite hard. But it was, was sort of a weight was lifted off my shoulder. Eventually all this truth came out that my family knew what happened. They knew that. In a weird way, I'm safe. Even though I'm in prison, I am safe. And the whole truth is coming off. And for me, it just was a whole weight lifted off my shoulder. It's like, even though it's a horrible situation, it's all done now. Let's just get the trial and let's crack on with my life. Let's, you know, sort this out. And so your family, they, they came to visit you and it was the first time they realised how low you'd got in life. Yeah. And, and were uh, they supportive? Very supportive. I, it's my mum, my stepmom, my grandma. They were the first visits I had, and all three of them 
in tears and disappointments, but also, you know, good to see that I was all right. Um, but yeah, my family, they've, they've been rocked. They've just one that stuck by me all the way. And I'm so proud to have a family like that. How long was you on remand and what happened when you went to trial? I was on remand for three months. Um, and then I went to, went to trial for the, the pre-hearing. Then I had the actual sentencing. I got three years. And how long did you stay in prison out of that three years? Yeah, so I was in prison for one year, four months, and then the rest was on tag for a year and a half. And then, you know, once the license, I was on license then for a year and a half off that license. And what did it feel like being in prison, given your background? You know, you come from what sounds like a very good upbringing, good education. What, what was it like in prison for you with the other prisoners? How did you get on with the other prisoners? And how did you cope in prison coming from where you came from? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, the only thing I know about prisons is what I've watched on TV and what I've heard. So I've already built up this thought of what it's like already. So I was frightened, terrified, to be honest. And the police said to me when I went in, they were like, expect the worst and it won't be that bad. So I went in and luckily I had this induction peer who looked after me and I went in with this attitude. But, you know, thankfully I'm not a smoker because I know smoking causes a lot of problems in jails. I know it's smoke free now. But where I can sort of read and write I started helping people with their applications on the wing their food menus writing letters to loved ones or solicitors because of that people sort of came to me and looked after me quite well I mean I personally had no issues in jail which I'm very thankful for. So when you got out after just over a year what what life did you go back to so you were on tag so you you were being monitored for how long and what life did you go back to? I was on time for, was it two months? And I just started working. My my mum's partner helped me out. And I was working on the market stalls, just selling bits. It was kind of like the Christmas period. And then when tag came off, I then started working for a recruitment agency, doing quite well. And then I started, from there, I started my own recruitment agency, which started to do, you know, really well. Again, making quite a bit of money. And that's, I was in a relationship there. And when that relationship broke down, things went wrong for me again. And end up for a second prison sentence. So you you'd got out of prison. You were leading quite a law-abiding life, and then a breakdown in your relationship drove you back to what drugs and crime? Yeah. So basically, so I broke broke up with the, my girlfriend at the time, um, and then I end up spending all the company's money just living at large, I suppose. And then I was thinking, you know, when the debt the letters are coming in, bills aren't being paid, I've had that panic rushing over me. What what do I do? What do I do? And then still haven't really addressed my mental health properly and all this spiraled again and then I went back to the burglary I was thinking I remember what it's like last time like it was quick and easy it's I can maybe if I do one then I can sort my life out why why burglary though burglary doesn't bring about I don't know but burglary doesn't bring about the sort of money that you needed I mean it sounds like you had a job you were generating money again were you still taking cocaine and gambling at this point no, I mean, so I hadn't used it all. When when the relationship broke up, uh, broke down, I then turned to cocaine again, just to, it was to sort of hide that pain, you know, just to ignore the truth. Um, and then the money was running out. So I'll try gambling. If I try something different, I might be able to earn some more money, which obviously nobody should do. It's not the right answer. Um, but the reason I, I mean, first time I went to burglary, I just remember sort of taking a walk in this lost state that I was in, just seeing an opportunity. And I just went for that opportunity to break into a house. And when I broke in, not nice to say, but I was like, that's quite easy. And then sort of it went from, you know, one to two and ended up going to jail for it. 
So how many burglaries did you go back to prison for? It was 30. Three zero. Yes. But I was, um, was it? It was, was TIC for 14. So I was charged for 14 and I take the rest in consideration. Even so, you were quite a prolific burglar then. You were breaking into people's homes. What, was it a cry for help, David, or was you really just trying to get money? Because it sounds to me that when you were in prison the first time round and your family turned up and you realised that they were very supportive, you've come out and you've let them down again. Is that how you would have seen it? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I think I think you're correct. I think there is a cry for help there. Um I mean, like, I've seen the relationship with my family now and how good it is. Um, I know I haven't been out for that long, but it's even this completely different attitude about me and attitude with them. But I think it is more, I mean, there was need for money, but at the same time, if I went to my family and asked for the money or asked for the help, they would have offered it to me, which I just, for some reason, I just didn't get my head around and didn't do it right. So you were convicted of 30 burglaries, and what was the sentence this time? Uh, five years, four months. So going to prison the first time didn't deter you because you knew if you committed further crimes, you would end up going back to prison. So that first experience in prison wasn't enough to deter you from going on to commit further crimes. I'm sad to say no. I mean, I like to say it did, but no, it didn't. How long did you serve out of that five-year sentence? Two years, eight months. And was it different this time? when you? Because you're serving a much longer sentence this time. Was it different? Did you go to different prisons? Was the experience any different from the first time? Yeah, they, it was um, definitely because I did go to different prisons. But I, what I was worried about the first time was my future. When I get out, when I hit the ground running, I want to start earning money, you know, get to a good life again. This time, I just scrapped all of that. It's like I'm here again. Why am I here again? Just trying to understand who I am. There's a lot of sort of issues from childhood that you know I haven't addressed. Such you know, I know people have had it worse than me, but you never having a father in my life and all this, and even going back to boarding school sort of um never really had the family life and I just focused on trying to find out who I truly was sort of taking a journey of self-discovery really which is now what I'm still traveling down at the moment and I always travel down there always learning who I am what my red flags are and what really sort of my turning points my trigger points really. So what did you discover during this sentence about yourself? One of the things that is, is weird is like I just try to please people too much. I worry too much about other people. I uh, sort of have this excessive need of approval all the time, which you just you shouldn't. Be, nobody should be like that. You should just be happy with who you are. Um, and it's also just trying to reconnect with my family and really connect, have that bond that I feel like it's always been missing, which I'm now sort of developing again. We're still working on that bond, but having their full support. And there's also my brother's had two children since I've been away as well. And spending time with those children, it's like I can never, I never want to be away from them again. And so how long have you been out of prison since that five-year sentence? Uh, so I came out April this year. So that was about eight months. So quite recent, less less yeah. than a year. And have you changed? Did that time inside second time round change you? I think I've changed personally. And my parents said they can notice it in me as well. Um, so I've, I started a new relationship. And obviously, I've been honest and told her, and her worry is, will things go wrong again? So she's spoken to my parents, you know, without me being there, she asked for the honest opinions and what they think. And they, they, they think I have. I think I have. And I have a good mentor as well with me and good people around me this time, which I never had before. 
You mentioned that you felt the need to please other people. Where does that come from? I don't really know. I don't know if it's... I've sort of been alone most of my life. Like, again, going... I mean, even though boarding school was a great opportunity, a great chance to thrive, you know, you still miss out on that family life and never having a father. My brother's a lot older than me, went away. So even though I had friends at school, I still felt alone in this world and always just wanted people to like me and be quite quite happy, you know, with me. Do, do you feel alone now? No, not at all now, no. no. I mean, I've lost, obviously, the prison sentences. I've lost quite a few friends, but the true friends are stuck by me and having my family around me and being just being as open and honest as I can be, I don't feel alone at all now. So as you were coming to the end of the second sentence, what were your aspirations on release this time? Last time you said it was to hit, hit the ground running and get back into making money and living a good life. What were your aspirations at the end of this prison sentence? Uh, just to live an honest life. That's all I wanted. It wasn't all about money anymore. Like I'm now work as a solar engineer, which you really enjoy. I just work outside installing solar panels, which I absolutely love doing some good for the world. Just wanted to have a good family unit again and just spend time with my family with just nothing to worry about and not having to look over my shoulder or anything, and not having to impress them with anything. And what else are you doing? Because when you contacted me, you, you were talking about your your adventures. What, what, what else are you doing in your life now that you were not doing before that you are very proud of? Yeah, so in, when I was growing up, I've always loved adventure. I've always loved being outside. And I think Losing in touch of that is sort of it's something I should have never done. Instead of studying music when I went to uni, I wanted to become one of the um was it the PGL guides, so like the kids and the adventures and stuff. It's something I should have never should have really carried on with my life. And when I was sitting in jail, I was thinking, if I did that, what would my life be like now? Would I be, you know, still doing the adventure stuff, having a great time? And I really keen on paddleboarder. Um, and before I went in, you know, I used to love going paddleboarding. And when I was sitting there reading my paddleboard magazines, there was just seeing so much I could do with the paddleboarding, which I want to do now. But also another thing I've always wanted to do is climb Mount Everest. And I was thinking, I haven't actually got anything to offer to climb Mount Everest because it is expensive. And I was thinking, well, nobody's actually climbed it for prison reform and prison rehabilitation to raise awareness around this. So I came up with the idea of Everest Reform Project and a lady I met in prison who owns a company called Penal Reform Solutions I do a bit of work for she's helping me and guiding me to make this this project a real thing two former prisoners and two prison staff are going to cite Mount Everest together to help raise awareness but on the journey we want to share the good news of stories that people have been to prison but have actually turned their lives around and have actually made a difference just trying to change the perspectives of everybody out there who doesn't really know much about prison and prison reformers. And do you think that's you? Does, does that fit you, David? Are you somebody that that sort of fell on hard times through your own doing? I must say, yeah. if you, you you know, okay, losing your job maybe wasn't your choice, but everything that's happened from there, the gambling, the taking of cocaine, the, you know, the attempts on your own life, the cries for help, has all been decisions that you've made for yourself, even if they were driven by outside forces, the loneliness and, and not having many people around you when you were growing up. Do you think you are the right person to be championing prison reform and rehabilitation and, and showing that people can turn their lives around? I think it's just it's so many different types of people have been to prison. I mean, people just assume it's one type, like I used to assume it's one type of person. 
So if you were to meet me on the street and, you know, I tell you you've been to boarding school, then you would never think that I've been to prison. But I want to show that anybody can go to prison. It doesn't matter what sort of walk of life you come from. You know, crime doesn't discriminate. Everybody can go to jail. And everybody, when we come out, we sort of do need a chance to change and we all need to work together. And one thing I did when I was in prison, you know, I was in these mentor roles, like the rep roles, and I was helping the guys that sort of couldn't come forward, too scared to speak to the staff. And that's sort of what I really want to do now. It's sort of just try and help and try and be a voice to the guys, you know. I'm probably not, as I said, I'm not the one that you would expect who's really been to prison, but I want to help other guys similar to me that I've met along the way. So the idea is is for you, two other prisoners and two members of staff who work in prisons to climb Mount Everest to raise money for prison reform programs, projects. Yeah, so we're going to raise it for, uh, there's a charity called Guys March, uh, what's it, Friends of Guys March, that we're going to raise the money for who help guys when they come out of prison, try and get their life back on track. But we're trying to work with a company to put this into a documentary as well to then just show the world what we can do when we're out of prisons. We're not just lost causes. You know, our mistakes don't define us. I mean, we have committed crimes, but we are people that committed crimes. And that shouldn't be what everybody just sort of um, puts a bracket over us, you know, as criminals. Like, we can move on, and that's what I want to show the world. And why do you think that's important? Why do you think you need to embark on this journey to change people's perceptions if they already have this preconceived idea of what prisoners, ex-prisoners are like? Because you can turn your life around, but you still have the the experience of being a convicted prisoner, um, etc. When I was sitting in jail, you watch all these prison programmes that come on and they sort of never show a positive side of what's going on, you know, and the goodness that can come from prison. I mean, it is my biggest failure, but why can it not be my biggest success as well? And I started working with um, this Dr. Sarah Lewis at Penal Reform Solutions, and she's all about changing people from fixed mindsets to growth mindsets. So she's gone off to Scandinavia and learned what they do over there to try and bring to this country. So I'm still working with her, and I want to help her grow this. And I think together we can do some good in the world. I mean, even if we help change a couple of lives, at least that's some lives, you know. Are you saying that prison... Without prison, you would not be the person you are today. You'd still be on this spiral of cocaine and crime. I think I would still be lying to myself, not being honest to myself, and not really understanding who I was. So I think going to prison has probably been, second time it's probably been the best thing that's probably ever happened to me, in a weird way to admit, really, I suppose. Are you an advocate that prison works then? Or is it more that, that that confined space where you had to reflect on who you, David, are, gave you an opportunity to really sort out the problems that you were facing on the outside world so that you could come out and be a different person? Prison doesn't work at the moment. If you want to change, you need to change yourself and want to change yourself. I mean, there are opportunities in prison. There are a lot of great organisations to help you. But you have to start, you know, the first thing you have to do is just start helping yourself before you can make any difference. Um, You can't just start shoving these courses down people's throats and everything if they're just not going to take it in and learn about themselves. But I think as well, it's not just uh, what happens in prison. It's what we've got to do after prison when people come out. That's what we need to focus on as well. So we release them and then sort of just tend to forget about them. Check in with probation once every two weeks. You know, you can give your probation lip service. They think everything's happy, but deep down you're not. We need to find more job opportunities for these guys and, and, and girls just to try and help them to become better citizens. This adventure that you're embarking on to raise money for rehabilitation, what, what, 
what does it involve? What have you got to do to prepare to climb Mount Everest? I mean, I think the most important thing, so I've got to raise the funds to get up Mount Everest. So we're aiming for May 2023. And for the four of us with all the training, so now there's a law saying you have to do at least one high altitude climb, which is above 8,000 feet, 8,000 meters, sorry. And to get all together, it's going to cost about £250,000 for four of us with the whole training. But hopefully, you know, with that, we, we can get coverage in a documentary. We can get the support of companies like Timpsons and people that are dedicated to helping prison reformers get into work. And what I quite like the spin on it is when I was in prison, the, sorry, our life was in the prison staff hands. This time their lives are in my hands and Cam's hands who I'm climbing with. So they're putting their trust in us to make this, this journey actually happen and I get up to the top of Mount Everest in, a, in the safest way possible. How do you feel about the pressure? Because given that your two last spells in prison were driven by the pressures that you were under, I mean, it seems like you're putting yourself under a lot of pressure to achieve something that could spiral back down out of control, or is that not a threat this time? You're not the only person said that. My mum's partner's also said that to me as well. But not this time. I've got a lot of support around me. I've got a very good mentor with me, and you've got people with sort of a, a team together that really sort of, coming around to get around me to make this happen it's not it's not just the four of us there's you know it's the whole back scene of people as well that are really trying to make help connections and make it happen so i don't feel i mean if it if it doesn't if we don't make if we don't raise the money to climb and hopefully along the way we can still share some stories that people that have changed their lives um, but we are getting quite a bit of interest with some you know very interesting people we've got one guy who wants to be our ambassador. He hasn't officially signed up at the moment, but he's quite a public figure. So having him on board would be quite good as well. Is he an ex-prisoner himself? No, he's climbed Mount Everest. He's um, done stuff. He's been in the military before, but he's done a lot with from like London, inner city kids and all of that, um, trying to help them get outside and sort of reform through adventure. So when I wrote to him as agent, they sort of connected with it and really liked the idea. And this space that you're now working in, did you ever imagine that this would be the space that you would be working in when you first started your job in the city? Not at all. Not at all. But it's something that I much prefer and something that's quite rewarding, just sort of seeing the difference that Sarah's making and trying to make and being on that journey with the Penal Reform Solution and Penal Reform Solution staff as well. And even sort of meetings, chatting with some of the prison staff now as a former prison, now I've left prison, is quite, it's quite interesting as well. And what was your view of criminals, prisoners, prison, crime, prison officers, before you yourself were entangled in that whole world? It was one of those, uh, you're in prison, you're, you're not a very nice person, throw, throw away the key type of attitude that I had before. And the same with my family as well. They had it and I've changed and my family have changed. And so if my mum and partner and my grand then come to see me and see what prison's like, their views have completely changed. Even to a point that my mum would like to start volunteering now in prisons to try and help people out. That's really interesting, isn't it? And it's taken quite a sad situation for that to be brought about. But then, you know, you can't expect everybody to be caught up in in crime and punishment because we have our our day jobs, if you like, and and lives to lead. And until you experience it for yourself, your views are very much or many people's views are very much like like yours used to be. So tell me, what, what does second chance mean to you? 
The second chance, I think it's more of trying to develop that growth mindset. You need to get out of your old ways and your old habits and always sort of take this journey to learn about yourself and learn from your mistakes. You know, mistakes can be lessons. And I think that's what you need to realize. For me, I was so money orientated and about that more focused on the future. And like for me, it's not all about money now. It's just about being happy, having my family and just learning to be a better person. And do you think you've been given a second chance? Do you think you've taken a second chance? Do you think other people deserve a second chance? I think, yeah, I think everybody deserves a second chance. If you're really going to work hard, you've got to work hard for it. You've, you know, for me, because I've been to jail twice, I've got a lot to prove still to people. You know, I'm, you know, I, yes, when I came out the last time, the first time, I said, oh, I'm never going back to jail. I said that now. And people are still going to be a bit hesitant. So you've got to work hard. But I think everybody deserves that second chance. If you really want to change, then you can change. You've just got to work hard for it. Some people might be harder. Some people might be easier. But we can all do it if we all really want to. What I find really interesting is that, you know, at the beginning of this journey, for you, it started when you lost your job and the shame of losing your job, the need to hide that fact from those that you cared about and you thought cared about you was was paramount. And that led to you going down this spiral of crime and prison. But you speak quite openly and honestly about the fact that you've now been to prison, that you are an ex-prisoner, an ex-offender, et cetera, et cetera. So you don't obviously, you know, live with the, that stigma or that shame in the way you did when it was something as simple as losing your job. Yeah, I think being to prison is it's, it's a huge thing. You know, it's not just a little blip in my life. Oh, I mean, it, it's, it's a massive thing. It's a life changing experience. So I shouldn't hide away from this anymore. You know, I should sort of, I suppose, embrace it, be honest and see if I can do some good for myself and other people like me, really. And what would your message be to other young men like yourself who maybe never been in trouble with the law, but maybe they're feeling under pressure because of the work that they're doing or or the demands on them from, from outside forces who could end up you know, doing what you did, going to prison, what would your message be to those people who, who are on that verge or edge? I think the scariest and most bravest thing you could ever admit or ever do is sort of just ask for help. I think if you really are in starting to spiral out of control, it might seem scary, it might seem weak, but just ask for help. It's, it's so simple and people be so open to help you, especially your loved ones. Like that's when I think back, it's not weird to think my family were going to help me. Of course they were going to help me. They, they would have done anything to help me. So I think just ask for the help, you know. It takes sort of a real man, a real person to ask for help, you know. You'll be doing the best thing for yourself and for anyone around you, if you have a family or anyone, really. And why did you find that so hard to do when you needed it the most? Because I thought asking for help was a sign of weakness, which I now realise it's not completely isn't it's the other way around it's 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 a show of strength to ask for help so you're not going to do this mountain climb until 2023 what what do you have to do to prepare for it are you having to do a lot of physical activity yes i do a lot of physical activity but uh as i mentioned briefly before i do a lot of paddle boarding so in april i'm going to be paddle boarding the four longest rivers in the uk to try and set the world record for the fastest time but I'm going to raise the money for the Alliance of Sport. Um, I don't know if you've come across them before. 
but they're about introducing sport into the criminal justice system to try and help teach people um, so when they go out into the, what's it out into community they can be a bit more respectful and know a bit more what they can learn about themselves what they learn from sport I've already done a couple of charity events since I've been out. I did one for the Tribe Foundation where I walked 100k within 24 hours along the Dorset coast. Um, and then I did another one for Gone West organisation where I paddled 50 kilometres with a baby oak tree on my paddleboard um, and planted it on the Isle of Wight from Paul Harbour. So in the meantime, I'm just going to continue working, doing my solar engineering and then try and do as much sort of charity work to help me train up as I can as well. You've achieved quite a lot in the time that you've been out of prison. In order to give back, do you feel there is a need in you to give back? Yeah, I do. I, I you know, really do. Somebody I really look up to and respect is um, John McAvoy. Uh, I really respect what he's doing with his life and how he's turned his life around. I know we're on two completely different paths, but I look up to him, sort of an idol, I suppose, and love what he does. And he, he inspires me as well to go out and do these charity events, do this adventuring. You know, and if he can do what he can do, then why can't someone like me? And then maybe one day somebody might look at me and go, if he can do it, then why can't I? And, you know, hopefully be a long line of people. And just for those who don't know who John McAvoy is. Um, he was he was a lifer in prison for arms. He was in there for armed ro- uh, robbery. Um, he's now a triathlete sponsored by Nike. I believe he's the first person they've ever sponsored. And he's doing really well for himself. Um, I haven't had the privilege to meet him yet, but hopefully one day I will get to meet him. Uh, and his story inspired you. You read about him and thought, I can do that. Yeah, yeah I've heard about him when I was inside because I think he broke the world record for indoor rowing in prison. So you hear about him. You hear these rumours going around. You meet people trying to also break the world record, but no one can match to that man. <laughs> <laughs> and how old were you through these different phases in your life? How old were you when you first lost your job, when you first went to prison, the second time you went to prison? Late 20s. So I think I was 28 when I lost my job, had my 30th birthday in jail. Um, I'm now 35. So sort of all from 28 till now, really, is where it all sort of went wrong, so really. seven years, you've gone through quite a, a life-changing experience. Yeah, 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 quite a big one. But look, David, I, I thank you very much for sharing your story, and I hope that people listening to this will be inspired by by what you have to say. Is there anything that you want to share with us that you've not shared with us before I end this interview? No, I just... To anybody, really, just just don't give up in life, you know. Even when you're the lowest you've ever been, just keep just keep going, you know. The only way is up. And just, again, don't let your mistakes define you. That's not who you are. You're a human being at the end of the day. We all make mistakes. And mistakes, all they are is just lessons to be learnt and to go and turn into a better person. You've just got to keep that growth mindset and don't be dragged down. Great. Well, look, David, thank you very much for sharing your story. And I hope people take some inspiration from from what you're about to do. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Please follow and subscribe to the podcast. It really will help keep the podcast going. Tell your friends to follow and listen too. And if you haven't already listened to previous episodes, you can on many of the different platforms. They're really worth a listen. The aim is to upload a new episode with a new guest every week on Wednesday. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message on my social media.
This episode was produced by Audio Avalanche. The original music by J-Road Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>